Налейте водки и объясните ему, в чем дело. All right. I will pour vodka and explain. Mr. Holmes, what you have seen tonight is the last and positively final performance of Madame Petrova. She is retiring. What a shame. She's been dancing since she was three years old. And after all, she's now 38. I must say, she doesn't look 38. <laughs> that is because she is 49. So, Madame has decided to leave ballet and spend life bringing up her child. How admirable. Problem is, how to find father? Oh, is he missing? Correct. And that's why you've called me in? Also correct. We must have father, because without father, how could there be child? I see. The whole thing is still in the planning stage. Correct again. Madame would like child to be brilliant and beautiful. Since she is beautiful, she needs man who is brilliant. За здоровье! За здоровье! За здоровье! The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> We're back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 177, and I am your host, Lee. Pajama Suicide, Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel. The pleasures of the chase are no longer for me. Harper, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, and uh, I'll tell you, the pleasures of the chase are actually with me, but, you know, it's a very different kind of chase, I guess. You, you just need... Uh, I, I'm seven... referring to the 1994 uh, film with Christy Swanson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's was, the chase i'm still very much a fan of any other chase not so much is that the equivalent of like a seven percent solution of cocaine and a saline solution to inject into your veins is that the... something like that i think it's more like seven percent saline and 93 percent cocaine but you know <laughs> and hasn't been around in a, in a long time unfortunately but one of our favorite guests jack big dog from baskerville graham how you doing sir Hey, pretty good. Thanks for having me back. The pleasures of the chase are, are very much with me, but in my case, it's the 1965 Doctor Who serial, The Chase, okay. featuring uh, my favorite Doctor Who character ever, a stupid Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of those, uh, you know, but, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I, w- I would have gone with redneck Peter Purvis, but you know, that's. that's oh, yeah, I'm... Morton Dill. Yeah. yeah. The man, the myth, the legend. How, how how stupid was this Darlick? Instead of exterminate, it was exfoliate. Is that what he said all the time? Or this is literally like a stupid. Like honestly, this is the thing that's in the serial. There's a Dalek in the Dalek spaceship time machine, whatever it is, and the other Daleks are giving it orders, and it's like duh, like that. It doesn't know how to work them. It doesn't know how to work the controls, and it talks really slow like this. It's 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 blissful. Wow, the, the similarities to the uh, so-called master race are uh, not at all stunning. 
did, did that Dalek believe that the other Daleks were, uh, or that the that the Daleks pranking him were ultimately members of uh, the Doctor's team uh, out to destroy him? Was that? Well, was I, that yeah, you know? I was going to say that within Dalekdom, this is the Christopher Cantwell. Of, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get the bleed over from the. This is this is great. This is a great <laughs> thing. <fine>. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we should stop this. We need to move on. It's this is this is where we need to be. Yeah, yeah. Here, Doctor Who in brackets. Um, my... Actually, I was thinking that both of these films, you know, the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, the Private Life of Doctor Who. And then Doctor uh, Doctor Who and the Spider Woman would both work as like really amazing Doctor Who titles. I'm just I'm just gonna lay that out there. Absolutely, Doctor Who yeah. and the Spider Woman. Yeah, I like that idea. So yeah, we are, we have two comments here. Uh, get to really quick. Uh, first off, the always stalwart Jeff Williams with his recommendation of the week, and I'm probably gonna pronounce this incorrectly. It's from 1994. It's called Felide, uh, an animated feline murder mystery from Germany that feels somewhat Disney-esque in its tone and characters, but is surprisingly graphic and dark with themes of eugenics, vivisection, and genocide. The film also oh. features the cartoon cats humping, pissing, and cult worshipping as Mario Ador's character, Bluebeard, says, definitely not the Aristocats. I've got a feeling I've read the novel that's based on. Okay. I, I didn't even know there was a film, but I'm pretty sure that I've read that novel. It's a detective story where it's narrated by the cat. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I'm thinking basically like all dogs go to he- heaven, but with cats. Like literally the same plot of All Dogs Go to Heaven, but well, it's yeah. more like as I remember it, it's more like the Big Sleep with cats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he says it is on uh, YouTube, so uh, yeah, this might push something out of my planned Jeff Williams month. I think he gives us so many good titles that we're... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and anything to get more pussy in the podcast, ultimately. That's right. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Daniel never disappoints. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a YouTube comment, very brief one. On our episode covering the rundown. Oh, good. I was hoping there'd be one for the episode I was <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> From someone called uh, Herman Jansen. And he simply says, go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least at this point, we can say he's just really disappointed he didn't get Rosario Dawson you know, on his screen when he clicked on that one. So, you know, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just assume that and then grant it and then just kind of say, you know what? I, you are correct, sir. I should be in hell for in any way enticing you to click on something that you thought might have Rosario Dawson in it that didn't. So yeah, yeah, I'll give him a mulligan on that one. Yeah. You know, if you're expecting Rosario Dawson and you don't get her, go to hell is a perfectly reasonable response. Whatever the rights and wrongs of the situation, you are justified. Maybe you should go and watch Alexander Rosario Dawson's in her uh, birthday suit in that film. Just don't go and watch Rent. Yeah. Even, no. Even Rosario Dawson doesn't make that worthwhile. <laughs> no. So we are going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to play some music, some podcast promos, and then we're going to be back with The Spider Woman from 1943. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com and doomedmoviethon.com. Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show, Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. The Spider Woman from 1943. It can't be Sherlock Holmes. He's dead. Is he, Norman? I doubt it. But if you were to say to me tomorrow, 
Sherlock Holmes is dead. The instrument of death was a spider, there's no doubt about it, Lestrade. And the bite of the creature drove these pajama suicides to kill themselves. Look out, Watson! Those insects are deadly. Directed by Roy William Neal, uh, written by Bertram Milhauser and Arthur Conan Doyle, starring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes, Nigel Bruce as Dr. John Watson, Gail Sondergaard as Andrea Spedding, Vernon Downing as Norman Locke, Dennis Huey as Inspector Lestrade, Alec Craig as Radlick, Arthur Hole as Adam Gilflower, Mary Gordon as Miss Hudson, Teddy Infer as Larry. Uh, Lydia Billbrook as Susan, and Angelo Rosetto as the Pygmy. And uh, we do have a synopsis here from IMDb from Gary KMCD. It says, Sherlock Holmes takes on a case that the press has dubbed the Pajama Suicides. Eminent men are going to bed in the safety of their own homes with everything seemingly being normal, only to commit suicide in the night. Holmes fakes his own death in the hopes of giving him a freer hand in the investigation and is convinced that a woman, a female Moriarty, as he describes her, is behind the deaths. The dead men were all eminent and very wealthy. He impersonates a wealthy retired Indian military officer in the hopes of drawing out the woman, and he soon meets Ardria Spedding. But she quickly sees through his disguise and proves herself to be the challenge Holmes predicted she would be. She is a worthy adversary and soon traps him, setting him up in a carnival shooting gallery that seems to assure his death. Uh, yeah, that's a fairly apt uh, synopsis of the film, I'd say. It's pretty good. I just think that the one thing that we should know we should note there is that that's a fuckload of plot for like a, literally a sixty-one minute movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, it leaves out a hell of a lot, doesn't it? And this movie is really an hour long. <laughs> uh, but yeah, since uh, Jack is our guest here, uh, we'll go to you first, Jack. What are your sort of general thoughts on this? I love this, and I love it not in spite of, but because it's complete, utter mad bollocks. Um, it's not my favorite of the of the Rathbone Bruce Holmeses. That's uh, the House of Fear. That's my favorite. And uh, uh, the Scarlet Claw is my second favorite. This is, this is, I mean, in terms of the ones that I'd sort of stick on to watch for pleasure, this is fairly well down the list. But even so, I think it's, I think it's marvelous. And it's complete rubbish, as I say. <laughs> And that's part of why I love it. It's just packed to the gills with random nonsense. The plot makes no sense whatsoever. Watson, um, Nigel Bruce's Watson sort of varies in from place to place in the series, where sometimes he's kind of he's he's like a, a you know he's competent, and mm -hmm. he's but he's sort of an old buffer, you know, in some bits, and in other bits he's so stupid you wonder how he gets his trousers on. Like he's, <laughs> he's like someone wandering around with a major head injury. You know, and this this is one of the films where he's like that. He's just so mm -hmm. daft in this film. You know, I love the comedy. I love the scene where he mistakes the um the guy. Entomologist. 
Yeah, it, which again, uh, spiders, not insects. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was he mistakes the um, the entomologist for Holmes in disguise, which is completely reasonable given Holmes's habit of just well, you know, faking his own death for no fucking reason at all, except to fuck with everybody, and then turning up in a disguise and fucking with everybody again yeah. for no reason at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then Watson assumes that this guy is Holmes in disguise, and it turns out not to be. And that that is just blissful for me. I it's so funny you almost lose bowel control. I, I do anyway. Um, and it's just, I I love the sort of the overwrought kind of attempt to do noirish flirting. I love how how Holmes and the bad the bad woman the Spider Woman spend the entire film sort of codedly flirting at each other in this incredibly ham fisted way. <laughs> I I love how many elements of of Conan Doyle it uses, but mixed up and and scrambled around. Like there's bits of the sign of four, and there's bits of the speckled band, and there's yep. bits of there's several the Devil's Foot. Yeah, there's several stories in the mix, but they're all yep. completely transformed into this complete load of nonsense and i just love how much of a window this is on uh, a world that's completely disappeared you know and it was one of the things i love about these holmes movies the basil rathbone ones is that they are a lot of them anyway are wartime propaganda yeah they at least part of what they are is wartime propaganda when we watch modern day representations of the second world war we watch it very much through our sort of our modern day lens even though we like to kid ourselves that we're more tough-minded and we like things to be gritty and dark and and thought-provoking and compromising we actually the stories we tell about the second world war now are incredibly simplistic and sanitized and we view it through this lens where we're we're fighting the overpowering and completely singular evil of nazism you know and I don't, you know, if anybody, I know that you can't downplay the evil of Nazism. And yet we we sanitize what we were like. You know, we sanitize what the good guys were like. Right. And if you go back to stuff like this, it's just, I mean, I chose this for this podcast because this film is so incredibly fucking racist. It's <laughs> it's just beyond belief. I mean, so many things. You've got the whole thing with the quote unquote pygmy. Um, um got Holmes blacking up to pretend to be an Indian army officer. You've got the racist caricatures of Mussolini who looks like a monkey in the in the fairground at the end and Hirohito and everything. And it's just it to me it's a wonderful window back into how people at that time thought. They didn't think of the Second World War and what they were engaged in in the way that we do or at least a lot of them didn't. I mean th this is imperial fiction. This is imperial propaganda. It's not the slightest bit self-conscious about the fact that it's representing Britain as having an empire and it you know it's oh you know you should hate these foreigners because look at look, look at Hirohito with his slanted eyes and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. It's just it's just this wonderfully candid window back into this completely unselfconscious moment of history which you know obviously it's you know to our modern eyes it's very dodgy you know it's one of those things where you watch it and there's a yikes moment every 2 seconds but in a way it's kind of refreshing i think <laughs> Well, there's there's definitely no pretense in this film. That's for sure. No, no. 
they, they blatantly put everything out there. Like, for instance, the way this is even more disparaging of women than even the original home stories were to an extent. <laughs> you can't trust women. The, they, they kill this way and they murder men in this way. It was obviously a woman who, who was behind these murders, Watson, because uh, only a woman would be so cunning and cold-hearted to uh, murder a man in this fashion. And Yeah. Is this the one where he actually says this is a feline crime? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> men, men are canine, women are feline. Yes. Uh <laughs> So, uh, so Daniel, what are your sort of general thoughts on this? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty much right on board with Jack here. Um, I I'm just gonna say we we uh, we you and I kind of had a, a disagreement in the last episode about whether the updating quote unquote of uh, Sherlock Holmes to the uh, 1940s was was a good decision aesthetically. I think I'm just totally down for Sherlock Holmes's noir. Like it's just it just works for me aesthetically, regardless. Jack is probably going to uh, horrifyingly disagree with me, and uh, in which case he's off the podcast. But that's fine. <laughs> um, no, I really like this. I I also like the fact that it seems to have presaged James Bond by twenty years. There, this feels very much like a Bond film with with yeah. kind of Sherlock Holmes in, in the lead. Uh, it's got a giant spider killing people. It's got a film fatale. Uh, it's got a, uh, you know, it, it ends in a, you know, overly complicated rig of, of death. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's so much, like, it's horribly racist. It's There's a lot of, like, really uh, bullshit things kind of going on in it, and yet it just moves and it just works. It's definitely overplotted for 60 minutes, but that means you're never, ever bored. There's never a chance to, to uh, think you're somehow... Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's another great set piece that's just another two minutes away, and so uh, I kind of adore this. And if if they're all this good, then I I'm gonna watch all of these. There's no question. So uh, no, yeah. I really enjoyed it. For me, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I don't know if it's you know out of the ones I've seen, I've only seen a handful of these. Uh, you know, outside of doing this for the podcast and. Probably not my favorite one, but it is enjoyable. Again, the idea of serializing these and making them very brief just is perfect. It, it works so well. I don't like Holmes as a guy who's just eager to pull a gun on a motherfucker and just start shooting at him. It feels very un-Holmes to me. He's not necessarily not a man of action. If he's being forced into fighting someone, he'll fucking do it. But this guy pulls a gun on a, on a guy who's he's chasing up on a building with before the guy even pulls a gun on him. He's, he starts shooting at him. I don't think Holmes would do that necessarily. And, <laughs> and then it's Holmes is an American cop. It's fine. You know? Yeah. But then he kills the guy and well, there goes that. Yeah, he just, he just guns him down. <laughs> <laughs> the, the America pro war propaganda is in full effect in this one with the shooting gallery, with the Mussolini, Hirohito and Hitler caricatures that you shoot at and shit like that. So yeah. Um, already talked about how disparaging this is of women. Although I do really like the idea of a female Moriarty and, that's actually something that comes up in the uh, elementary uh, series, uh, the American uh, Sherlock series with mm. uh, uh, what's his face from uh, fucking hackers of all fucking places and uh, Lucy Liu, um, the, the the main actor in Hackers. What's what the fuck's his god? god Johnny I, Miller or I know it until you Johnny Lee Miller. Yes. yes. Yeah. Him. Yeah. I think I always think of him mainly from Train Spotting. But, yeah, uh, but the Moriarty in that is both Irene Adler and Moriarty apparently uh, in, in in that series, which uh, what uh, is one I have to revisit too because I quite liked it. I have like the first season on DVD or whatever. But I've never seen any of that, but I've I've always meant to get to it. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's it's an interesting update. I, I I find it way better than Sherlock as an update. Definitely. Well, I've 
I've never seen any of that either, so <laughs> I can't comment on that. Well, yeah, I know, I know why you haven't seen any of that. <laughs> You've deduced it. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. it's elementary, my dear Lee. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think maybe my biggest complaint, and and you brought this up, Daniel. Way too much plot for an hour. They they borrow, like Jack said, from three or four different stories here, and they just try to put too much into this. I, I don't know why they did that necessarily, because honestly, they could have done this whole series just remaking all the stories, and they could have put new elements into those stories, right? But here they just have like several cultivated elements from a bunch of classic Sherlock Holmes stories, and there's just too much going on. There's way too much plot. You've got the little kid catching flies. You've got the pygmy who also is painted in brown face, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it almost feels like it's a, they're trying to throw red herrings in your way for people who know the Holmes canon to, to an extent. Oh, they're going this way. Oh, no, they're going that way. Oh, no, they're doing this. Yeah, well, overall, it's a little bit like a Marvel movie, right? Like, it's it's almost got that sort of, like, concept of we're going to throw in these little references mm-hmm. into this kind of existing canon for the for the fans and we're gonna like just never take our foot off the gas and you know it's just it creaks maybe more so than than modern stuff mostly because we're just a little a little more familiar with the techniques and it's it's just kind yeah. of it's in its gestation state. I mean, you know, these these do kind of make me think of the Marvel movies. It's weird how you know, I mean they made like three of these a year, again, very much like mm-hmm. the modern Marvel movies. Uh, they're meant to be just kind of like a programmatic entertainment. They're meant to just kind of, you know, fulfill that entertainment need yeah. um and they're kind of based on older material i mean it, it, it they, they do strike me as kind of fitting in this weird way into a, a kind of similar um cultural milieu as is kind of the marvel film so i don't know it's a, just kind of something I, I come back to just watching it was like and and they're and they're just kind of relentlessly entertaining you know i mean it just yeah. does not stop entertaining you for the i mean literally they stick in a death trap scene in the last four minutes just mm-hmm. because, like, you know, like, you had no need for this. The film just had to be 60 minutes. We had nothing else to do but, to, you know, put him in a, in a weird death trap and uh, spend most of the money for the film on that little rotating thing. I don't know. It's a weird, uh, weird Here, here's, here's my question, and I'll, I'll throw this to Jack because he'll probably know better than us. Did any of these uh, Rathbone films, did they actually adapt the final problem as a sort of standalone story? No. 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 Okay. So um, this this is probably the closest they come to doing that. Actually, the oh. the opening, not the quite the opening, but the opening sequence with Holmes and Watson in Scotland, where Holmes decides to fake his own death for no reason at all. Yeah. Um, and then turns up again in Baker Street, and you know nearly gives Watson a heart attack by turning up in disguise. You know that's not very close to how it happens in the original stories, but it's about as close as these movies get. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that's the thing. I, I should have mentioned the the synopsis for this. He doesn't fake his death to catch the Spider Woman. No. He doesn't know about the Spider Woman. He just fakes his death because he's bored because he because crime is no longer taxing to him. So he's like, I need something else. I need to retire. He says at one point that he's done it in an effort to flush out the person responsible for the pajama murders, <laughs> but that doesn't make any fucking sense. That's no. a, that's obviously just something the writers have given him to say to cover up the fact that they wanted to stick in the bit where he fakes his own death and then fools Watson by turning up in disguise. And like yeah. almost everything Holmes says is that they need to get to the the end, so they need him to find the bad guys. So he just turns up at the sideshow and the writers give him a line that says, oh, we're looking for a pygmy. The logical place is a sideshow. So mm. the first sideshow he goes to, there they are. That's that's literally how Holmes's <laughs> deductive powers work in these things. It's all just retrofitted to fit the needs of the script. Yeah. 
Moriarty yes. does turn up several times in this series of films, right. every time played by a different actor. Yeah. Um, he's played by Lionel Atwill in one of them. He's played by Henry Daniel in one of them. And uh, somebody else plays him, and I can't remember who it is. So he's in three of the films. Presumably um, Roger Delgado. Should have been, shouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Daniel was saying, that's almost a proto-Bond thing where you have Blofeld played by different fucking actors every time. Yeah. Yeah, and then he dies at the end of every uh, appearance and then turns up again in another film, very much like uh, Blofeld or Dracula or one of these people. Interesting, yeah. These were very much B features. I mean, I think these were made to be like the thing that's on before the main feature, weren't they? Yeah. So they they would attract people with a double bill that said, you know, here's here's the main feature and also Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone, and it would be on before the main film. Were double featured with Abbott and Costello films, as far as I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. So I can see that being a really fun evening at the movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could yeah. I could imagine these being like with like Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman or whatever the fuck yeah. you know, like kind of thing. Yeah. My final thoughts on this: it, it works for the most part. It's it's overly convoluted. There's a, like Jack said, there's a lot of bullshit in it, but you just kind of like overlook it because it's not two hours of bullshit. It's one hour of bullshit and it's entertaining bullshit. So that's kind of where I land on this one. And it just, it just strides along with such complete confidence. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's full of things that are complete bollocks. As I say, like the, the ridiculous rigmarole people have to go through to gain entry to the baddie secret lair in the, in the, in the sideshow. Like they have to win a, baby doll and then pull its arm off and then it's just complete nonsense but it just swaggers through it and you just go yeah yeah that makes sense i guess <laughs> very much like a bond film yes yeah yeah i love Evil. these movies i love these movies i've loved these movies since they were on tv when i was quite a small child i must have been six or seven years old you know and they were showing them on tv i've been really entertained by every one of these i've seen so far yeah definitely even even though they you know for the most part, they just dash in in the face of the Holmes canon. For the most part, oh yeah. <laughs> I was a I I grew to be a, a you know a Sherlockian when I was a bit older, sort of from from like the age of eleven to fifteen. I I was I was big into Sherlock Holmes. I've read I've read all the stories at least twice, and I, I you know I went through my inevitable sort of purist phase. But um, yeah, I, I and uh, where I, where I disavowed these, you know, oh no, I don't like those. But I've come round again as I've grown up. I've come back to love them. Uh, anyone have any more thoughts on this one, or should we move on? Uh, I like Gail uh, Sundergaard. I think she's really good at it. She's really good. And just going for a little bit of trivia here, there there is another movie that was released in '46 called "The Spider Woman Strikes Back" with her. But it's a totally different story, totally different character. They were just like <laughs> banking on the basis, so. Because these were really successful, like the, right. these were these were big money makers for Universal at the time. So uh, mm. uh, they were like, "Hey, it's Spider Woman Strikes Back," and it's same thing with uh, Rondo Hatton as the Creeper. Like he basically plays the Creeper, but a different character in every film that he sort of portrays that yeah. kind of character. So I'd love to see a spin-off series with you know the Spider Woman. That'd be great. Yeah, I think yeah. Gale wants to be Return of the Holmes ultimately. So you have yeah. you know. <laughs> well, I mean, they, she just gets arrested. They should have brought her back, you know, like because she's she's presented as someone who can see through Sherlock Holmes' bullshit and like rival him to some extent. So yeah. it's it almost feels like yeah, it should have brought well, her back. 
she i mean if it wasn't for watson being easily distracted holmes would get killed in that in that final sequence i mean he he takes a, he takes a few way uh, goes around the uh, round the, the whatever it is the 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 thing that goes round and round and round it takes a few goes for him to cut through his bonds it's only cuz watson gets distracted a couple of times by lestrade talking crap at him that he doesn't get shot through the heart so she, she very, very nearly wins, you know. It, it, I suppose it pays off uh, Holmes's decision to hang around with a complete moron all the time. <laughs> oh, and I do love the uh, the comedy bit between Lestrade and uh, Watson at the beginning there where they think what, uh, Holmes is dead. And, yeah, yeah, and you tell they hate each other so much. and then, But at the same time, they're being polite. And it's like, well, can I at least have one of his pipes? And it's like, well, yes, take take your choice of pipe. And then Holmes shows up. <laughs> and and Holmes even grabs his pipe. It's like, eh, fucking take it. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we were, we were talking about how this it's so overstuffed, and they could have taken some bits out. I'm thinking of all the stuff in it, the stuff to take out is probably the completely irrelevant detour at the start, where Holmes fakes his own death and then turns up again. And yet, that leads to one of the the, the nicest scenes in the film, which is the scene with Watson you know, alone in Baker Street and Mrs. Hudson's getting upset and Watson's pouring through his old case books and Lestrade turns up and he's getting all sentimental. And you can, it's really, it's really a lovely little scene in the midst of all the nonsense. There's this lovely little moment of emotional truth. I mean, it shows you what a brilliant actor Nigel Bruce was, that he yeah. can do this completely over the top comedy, playing this grotesque character. And yet, and yet in that one scene where he's sort of going through the, the his scrapbook, you know, you totally buy into the fact that this is, this is a guy who's grieving his best friend. He's really upset about it, you know. And then Holmes turns up, and he just—he never even—he never even fucking apologizes. No. This, he's such no, a Holmes, dick. Holmes is a dick. We 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 talked about that last episode. Holmes is a dick. <laughs> that that's a theme we might return to once or twice during this uh, series. <laughs> But yeah, we're going to take a quick break for a little bit of music and uh, we're going to come back and talk about the private life of Sherlock Holmes. You ungodly warlock.
Private Life of Sherlock Holmes from 1970. Billy Wilder, the man who gave you the apartment and some like it hot, now reveals the private life of Sherlock Holmes. Dr. Watson in his lifetime recorded some 60 cases demonstrating the singular gift of his friend Sherlock Holmes. But there were other adventures which for reasons of discretion were withheld from the public. Adventures which involved matters of a delicate and sometimes scandalous nature. The private life of Sherlock Holmes was anything but elementary. My dear Sherlock, there are certain affairs that do not come within the province of the private detective. The public has a right to know these things. Sherlock Holmes was a man of curious habits and eccentric tastes. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Thoroughly. This will take care of it. And not always what he seemed to be. You have described me as six foot four, whereas I am barely six foot one. Madame says you are shorter than she thought. Oh, I didn't mean to be. I hope I'm not being presumptuous. But there have been women in your life. I thought I would never find you. It's been such a long time. I found her body quite rewarding. Especially the palm of her right hand. Midgets. What is it indeed that feeds on canary birds and sulfuric acid and has an engine for a heart? Open that door. Sherlock, when I said drop this case, it was not merely a suggestion, it was an order. By whose authority? By the authority of Her Majesty's government. Holmes, you better take this with you. client isn't Madame Valador. It's the Imperial German government. Holmes, I saw it. The monster. It's getting closer and closer. It took a genius to cover up Sherlock Holmes' vices, blunders and bizarre tastes. Sherlock Holmes was a genius. The private life of Sherlock Holmes was anything but elementary. Directed by Billy Wilder. Written by I.A.L. Diamond, uh, who is a uh, comedy writer in, in Hollywood and did at least, I, I think, 12 different films of Billy Wilder. He was one of yeah, his regular, late... con- regular c- c- contributor to Billy Wilder's career. Did the apartment with him. Um, yep. Starring somebody Robert... should do a podcast about that sometime. Yeah, somebody should do something in the apartment. Yeah, who, who, who's, who's done that? Uh, Robert Stevens as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Colin Blakely as Dr. John Watson. Uh, Genevieve Page as Gabrielle Val- Valadon or Ilse von Hoffmannsthal. 
uh, Christopher Lee as Mycroft Holmes, who's also played uh, Sherlock Holmes, and Henry Baskerville uh, at some point in his career. Irene Handel as Mrs. Hudson. Clive Revel as Rogozin. Tamara Tormanova as Madame Petrova. Stanley Holloway as First Grave Digger, and Molly Marine as Queen Victoria. Synopsis here from someone called Joel Prieninger. Director Billy Wilder adds a new and intriguing twist to the personality of intrepid detective Sherlock Holmes. One thing hasn't changed, however, Holmes' crime-solving talents. Holmes and Dr. Watson take on the case of a beautiful woman whose husband has vanished. The investigation proves strange indeed, involving six missing midgets, villainous monks, a Scottish Castle, the Loch Ness Monster, and covert naval experiments. Can the sluice make sense of all this and solve the mystery? Fair enough, I'd, I'd say. De- kind of def- skips the, the entire first half of the film, but yeah. Yeah, although uh, we'll get into it. There was a much larger first half of this film that is just totally exercised from the entire thing. But uh, again, we'll go to uh, Jack. What are your sort of general thoughts on this one? Okay, I have to confess that I actually just watched this for the first time today. Because when we were planning this podcast, we decided we were going to do The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. And I kind of just sort of assumed I'd seen it. You know, I, I yeah, I've I've seen that, haven't I? Yeah, I've, of course I've seen that, and I think I because there's there's kind of a subgenre within Holmes movies of kind of sideways Holmes or one-off Holmeses. You know, you've got you've got movies like um, uh, Murder by Decree that Daniel and I have talked about on another podcast, um, where you've got Christopher Plummer playing Holmes and he's he's up against Jack the Ripper. You've got a movie called the 7% solution. You've got this one, of course, the private life of Sherlock Holmes. You've got a movie called Sherlock Holmes is smarter brother. Um, you've got a movie called without a clue, which is kind of a feeble comedy where Holmes is just an actor and Watson's the detective, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's version of Hound of the Baskervilles. There's a few of them sort of sideways Holmes's or, you know, and I kind of think I got this one mixed up with one of the others or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I stuck it on earlier today and I thought, yeah, I don't know this. I've never seen this before. <laughs> so my, my thoughts on this are pretty roughly formed at the moment. I have to say, I'm not, the world's biggest Billy Wilder fan, I have to admit. I like Double Indemnity, of course, and uh, Ace in the Hole is another movie that I love. I don't have a lot of time for a lot of his other quite highly acclaimed movies, I have to admit. I I have to say, this this kind of left me a bit cold. I found it a bit tiresome. I think maybe this was more impressive at the time. I, I think this might be a case of breaking the ice a little bit, because I think maybe before this, most people's mental image of Holmes would have been either from the original stories, you know, the the old Victorian illustrations, or it probably would have been Basil Rathbone, which mm-hmm. by 1970 is going to be looking a bit stuffy, a bit old-fashioned. This one comes along, it's before the 7% solution, it's before Peter Cushing plays him on TV, it's before the... Um, it might be after Peter Cushing plays him on TV, I'm not sure, but it's certainly yeah. before the, the Granada series, the Jeremy Brett right. Granada series. It's before a whole load of quite seminal developments in the way the character is portrayed in film and on television. And I think maybe this, in 1970, this is probably breaking ground in a way that it's difficult for us now looking back, certainly me seeing it for the first time after having watched the Granada series and several other things, to to quite recapture, if you know what I mean. I suspect this seemed a bit more daring at the time than it does now, because it's actually pretty... It's pretty mild as a reassessment, or it. I don't think it really manages to be a reassessment or a deconstruction of the character, except 
at moments and it has a couple of really great moments i i would say i mean it's essentially kind of in two parts you you said it was it was originally much it was supposed to be much longer it was originally supposed to be about three hours long and it was going to be a roadshow picture and it was going to have several other segments it was going to be almost like an anthology movie and there were several other segments that they one of them they filmed and cut and several of them they didn't film in the end because the studio didn't want it to be too long so what we end up up with is kind of a film that's Sort of the first third is one thing, and then the second and third thirds are are another thing. You've kind of got two stories. The first story, I like much, much, much more than the second story. By the time I'm at the end of the first story, the story with the ballerina and all that, I'm thinking, yeah, this is really interesting. Where are they going to go from here? As it turns out, they kind of don't really go anywhere from there. They get lost in this thing that's more like sort of pastiche of john buchan than anything else and i i got pretty uninterested in that to be honest all this stuff with the you know submarines and the loch ness monster and stuff i i didn't find that very interesting i was much more interested in the first part which i i, I don't know i suspect i suspect daniel might agree with me on that <laughs> yeah daniel i would recommend taking a break from it and then coming back to it uh in a year or two and seeing how you feel about it uh rewatching it calls mm-hmm. I knew this one by reputation for for a while and then went through a bit of a Billy Wilder period and just kind of back when getting DVDs from Netflix was the thing that people did. That's what I did. (laughs) So I watched this maybe 10 years ago and didn't get a lot out of it. Just kind of I watched it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a movie, I guess. Kind of had a similar response to you and didn't really think too much about it until we were talking about doing this series. And I'm like, I'd like to rewatch that. And obviously it's Billy Wilder and, you know, it kind of comes with a high reputation. And um, I'm rewatching it. I don't know. You know, I've changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, and, you know, the the film is obviously what it is. But yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot more. And I think I got a lot more out of it. I think that I kind of appreciated the let's stick Sherlock Holmes into the Cold War, which is sort of what it's doing, um, maybe a little bit more than, than you seem to. Although I think that the, the actual mechanics of what it's doing are, are less interesting. Um, I like the idea of this like Explorers Club and this sort of critique of the, this kind of colonialist ambition. I, I think that that's um, something that, that's threaded through there, although it's not exactly subtle and it's not exactly profound, but I did kind of enjoy that element of it. I like the idea that Holmes is not portrayed here as, you know, the, the kind of calculating super genius so much as, you know, a guy who's just observant and who has like good PR. Yeah. I like the idea that Mycroft is also not so much a guy who's like a calculating super genius as much as a guy with the intelligent services of the greatest empire the world has ever known at his beck and call, <laughs> you know, it's like, how Holmes could you not have realized that this person was actually working for the Germans? Oh, well, maybe <laughs> I don't have the intelligent services working for me. Yeah. Thanks a lot, dude. Um, and, and also I just happened to be looking away every time she visibly signaled to people with her fucking right. parasol. <laughs> Although I, I kind of like, it feels like he's, I don't know. I, I it, it seems like he's not intentionally not noticing that as a way of leading her on. Like he, like he knows something, but he, I don't know. It's a little no, bit he, confused. As he far catches as, on afterwards. Like yeah. once, once Mycroft says she's a German spy, and then he looks at the parasol. He's like, "Oh shit, this was right in front of me all the time." <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. How, that's how I read it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, I'm perfectly willing to to admit that I was just kind of not not quite. Um, I don't know. Um, no, I, I I like the I mean the the idea of kind of like exploring Holmes's issues with women. 
I, I like that idea, and I and I think there's some great comedy in the first half. It's very IEL Diamond and Billy Wilder stuff. <laughs> um, you know, it feels you know we're just gonna call this character Sherlock Holmes and do it. Uh, you know, you might as well ta- cast uh, Tony Curtis and uh, Marilyn Monroe. It is <laughs> right, you know. But but yeah, no, I I, I think I, I really enjoyed this. This probably would be on my short list for best of the year. Except- I've seen this one already, so it doesn't doesn't count. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I think if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, I definitely think it's worth it. But I agree that like it just it, it doesn't feel as uh, essential in terms of the Holmes mythos as much as it's I think a kind of an entertaining addition to it. Um, you know, and I, I, I wanted to part of just you know we've just seen. We've seen this done over and over again since then. And in a lot yeah. of ways, uh, uh, sorry, I keep wanting to say Doctor Who and the Spider-Woman. Doctor Who and the Spider-Woman is uh, clearly, uh, you know, kind of going over some of the same ground in terms mm. of Holmes's kind of romantic relationships and his the treatment of women and, you know, some of the criticisms of that. And, and you know, I, I do wonder, like, how much that, you know, it could have been much more aggressive in 1970 than it was. And, uh, you know, I feel like Billy Wilder had the chops to be able to do that. I mean, the guy who made The Apartment, could absolutely have been much more vigorous about yeah. his uh, treatment of uh, of Holmes's treatment of women, but yeah, it does feel it does feel slightly blunted in, in that regard in terms of what we can expect. But um, I still I still I still really enjoy the film, and uh, yeah, that's my sorry I've been babbling. I just found it really frustrating because I agree with a lot of what you say, but for me, a lot a lot of what you mentioned. I mean, like the the idea of you know Mycroft as uh, you know working for. British imperialism and Holmes is hyped up beyond his his actual character and the examination of his attitudes to women, etc. It seems to me like the film sets up a lot of things like that right. and then just does nothing with them. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the whole potential critique of imperialism just kind of collapses in this joke about Queen Victoria nixing the sub because it's unsporting. And, yeah. you know, oh, I can take care of the Kaiser's dirigibles by just having a, a, a stern, uh, giving Cousin she'll, Billy a she'll stern. She'll send talk. a really nasty letter <laughs> yeah. to her. And I will like, send a sharp letter, sir. It will yeah. be a sharply worded Which letter. Is, which is funny, but it does just kind of curtail the critique. It kind of cuts it off. And I feel like the same thing happens. Like the film sets up the question of exactly what Holmes and Watson mean to each other. You know, Watson starts off as kind of, he, he's he's almost like Holmes's fanboy and he's embellishing Holmes in the stories that he writes, almost like fan fiction. And Holmes is kind of, the like it opens and I'm thinking, yeah, this is really interesting. Holmes is actually wearing the Deerstalker because he says that the public now expects him to because yeah. they've seen it in the story. Stories. And then Watson says, well, that's not my fault. That's the illustrator. And there's some, because that's true. It was the illustrator that gave Holmes a deerstalker, not Conan Doyle. So there's some really interesting sort of metatextual stuff there happening. And you get this setup of a really interesting relationship where Holmes is, you know, he's kind of living with the fact that this fan who lives with him is mythologizing him. And then you get into the idea of the question of what Holmes's feelings actually are for Watson, because he tells the, the, the Russian ballet dancer that they're in a relationship. And, you know, I was thinking this could go in some really interesting ways. You know, how does Watson feel about the possibility that Holmes might fancy him? How does Holmes feel about the possibility that, you know, about learning that Watson is horrified by the the idea of there being anything like that between us? How will they deal with this idea about them being partners getting out there? Will there be stuff about, you know, will there be stigma for them to deal with? Will there be a moment where Holmes actually talks about whether he does have feelings for Watson? Will we get, you know, and it just never happened i just found the 
the back half of the film a serious letdown because instead of coming through on any of that, we just end up sort of doing rather lame comedy stuff in a boat with a Loch Ness monster. You know, I, I just... <laughs> right. It really was a letdown for me, I have to admit. My thoughts on this kind of mere jacks quite a bit, although I, overall I do like this film quite a bit, but it is severely disappointing. The first act really has so much potential. Like, there's the version Jack was just talking about that is really interesting and should be a film on its own, which is just great. There's the other idea of pitting a master criminal against Holmes who knows that he's gay in a relationship with Watson and may, you know, blackmailing them. That, that would be an interesting story to kind of explore, especially, you know, like what if they were exposed in Victorian era times as, as being gay lovers? Like what, what would that do the, to the reputations? What would that do to Holmes's status as world's greatest detective and all that? There, there's a lot of potentially interesting storylines that you could go with there. Like, but this film and partially because it's cut so much, but, at the same time, I mean, we, we do see the end of this film, so we know it doesn't really go as far as it should. And it just becomes a standard Sherlock Holmes story. Like, it, it just it honestly just becomes a standard Sherlock Holmes international mystery scandal, whatever, right? At the same time, I think this movie's fucking hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was laughing. Just, I actually, like, hurt myself laughing on a couple of these jokes watching it uh, tonight. I like how witty it is. I like how funny it is. I enjoyed the performances. I love that it actually does sort of take... Watson's stories and and how his embellishments basically made Holmes' life so much more difficult because he has to play up the character, which I, I thought was really funny. Um, yeah. And 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 also like the the first little bit of the film also it's not only Watson's embellishments but it also covers like some of the backstory of Holmes to a certain degree like it, it brings up the drug problem it brings up his views on women uh, all those sort of things and then it of course it doesn't really go anywhere with them like it, it it's kind of yeah no we're gonna we're gonna stop that and we're gonna tell a regular Sherlock Holmes story. I like. I mean, it gestures at a lot of stuff that it doesn't really cover, and I was I'm kind of yeah. I kind of give it credit for at least gesturing at it and you know suggesting it. Mm -hmm. But um, I also like the idea of like Holmes kind of uh, tackling this you know kind of world striding imperial colossus. Um, even though he doesn't, you know, he really just kind of brushes it. And I think there is this kind of concept of, you know, no, these things are outside of your domain, Holmes. You are not prepared well, to to deal with this. this yeah, is, I, know. I, I do, I do like that aspect. The idea of pre World War spy stuff is very intriguing. I, I want to see more films that sort of cover that sort of idea. And mm. I mean, if if you look within the Holmes canon, if you take Sherlock Holmes as a real person. And this film does posit him as a real person. These are the uncovered, you know, opened 50 years after John Watson's death uh, notes that are very fucking dusty for sitting in a fucking vault in the lockbox, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like someone poured sand. Like maybe Holmes was cremated and they poured his ashes <laughs> into the box. <laughs> but I do love that it, it sort of goes within that. And it's, yeah, I mean, if Sherlock Holmes and Mycroft were real people, they would definitely be involved in like uh, espionage and stuff like that. Affairs of the estate. Uh, and, and Well, there's... 
there's a there's a there's a fair few stories in the you know a fair few of the original Conan Doyle stories that do deal with stuff like that. Yeah, like one of my favourites is the Second Stain, and that's all about Holmes has to retrieve a stolen letter from a European potentate that from a spy who's yeah. blackmailed it out of the wife of a cabinet minister because if it gets out, it could start a it could start essentially it could do what they what they say in that uh, episode of Ripping Yarns. It could start the First World War uh, five years too early. Yeah, because <laughs> the, there is a there is a Sherlock. Maybe it's a movie or a story. I can't remember where Holmes is like. Oh, we've prevented a world war, and then Holmes is like, "Well, we've prevented one for now, but it's still yeah. inevitably going to happen." I think that's in his last bow, which is yeah one of the last ones, if not the last one, because it very much ends with this this look towards what's coming. You know, the the first world war is on the horizon, and everybody knows it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do like the spy story. I, I do like that, although they pull away from the uh, homosexuality angle, unfortunately, which I think would be an interesting thing to explore, especially in the way this film kind of deals with it in the first act. Okay, you got something going here. Maybe we can get something good. And then it's like, oh, no, you, you can obviously see that he's kind of falling in love with this female spy. The scene where uh, they break into that uh, place, which is the... Uh, the drop uh, letter address <laughs> where he helps her down from the roof or whatever. By the way, you, you got a steel grate and a roof, the black mold in that place, like that would have killed them on contact. Like <laughs> there, there's no way you go into that place and you come out alive. Like that's just fucking ridiculous. But, uh, but yeah, like the way he, he, he lets her down and like looks at her and like he sees her naked at one point where she's still delirious it's it's pretty obvious that they're like pushing towards yeah we're hinting that he's gay but not really you you could read him in different places in this film as either bisexual homosexual or asexual depending yeah. on i mean you know and it, and it and it doesn't seem to be something that the film is kind of like struggling with an ambiguity it just feels like it, it just it's just kind of indifferently written to, to some yeah. degree and i think it's written for you know, sort of the comedy moments, like it's written to be kind of digestible in like five minute chunks as opposed to, you know, something, something broader. I mean, I mean, I yield diamond worked with Wilder uh, through, throughout his entire career. I mean, and, and wrote some of the, some of the great comedies and um, you got to think that, you know, it, this feels a little bit more like a job for hire. It feels, it definitely doesn't feel like kind of top notch Wilder. It feels, you know, kind of like that second tier, but even second tier Wilder is just full of great stuff, but often just sort of like, a mishmash, you know, cause water yeah. to just make so many films. Um, so, mm. And yet yeah. this was apparently kind of a passion project for Billy Wilder, wasn't it? This was something it, he wanted to make for ages. This is what he wanted to be like his big magnum opus. Like it's the road show picture. Right? Yeah. At, like three hours. Right. Yeah. And it and, got but, kind but of often, taken away from him those... didn't it, by the studio. But also those kind of big, uh, you know, uh, passion projects are exactly the ones that end up being a giant fucking mess because it's filled with twenty different ideas. You know, yeah. that, well, yeah. this was the this was a two hundred and sixty page script. God, like Jesus that's Christ. that's fucking insane. And I mean, it did have a budget of ten million dollars, but at this point, apparently, United Artists had suffered a bunch of flops in '69, so they like basically well, yeah, like this... we're we're not doing we're not doing road shows anymore. Sorry. 
that's it. That this is the era when the roadshow is, you know, coming to an end, isn't it? As a result of loads of and a, another thing I, I've discovered reading up on this, Billy Wilder initially wanted this to be a musical. So mm. in its early stages, this was going to be one of those big roadshow musicals of the type that was. I mean, people should go and watch Lindsay Ellis's video about this because she did a really interesting video on the decline of the musical, and it's and and it's all tied up with this business of the roadshow. But not all big roadshow movies were musicals, of course, but a lot of them were and it was kind of you know they had mary poppins and my fair lady and stuff like that reinvigorated the musical in the in the 60s and they started making these big musicals like uh, dr doolittle and camelot yeah. and and they all flopped and the, the big one the, the mother of all musical big flops was hello dolly so this I, this was round about the time that these movies were getting commissioned and then the studios were backing away from them for fear of yet another huge flop, I get, which is probably why it got cut to ribbons by the studio. Yeah, I do love seeing Christopher Levo's hairpiece. Uh, <laughs> yeah. this, this, was, this was a bit of a revelation for me because I, I had seen uh, Peter Cushing about his hairpiece, but until watching this film, I did not realize that Christopher Lee was bald that early in his career. Like, <laughs> is that is that actually real that's, Christopher that's, Lee head, or I thought was, that was maybe no. a prosthetic bald head? No, that's his real hairline, apparently. Oh. Uh, that early on, that was his real hairline, apparently. Oh. So he, he was like uh, Peter Cushing. They both had that sort of iconic fake hairpiece, but they both look fucking good. Like, I will say, I I never noticed in well, I never either realized, one of their no. movies. No. Uh, I, I was also kind of tickled to see uh, Frank Thornton from Are You Being Served in a minor role here as the sort of desk guy at the uh, Diogenes's uh, club or whatever. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Club. Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> and referring back to 60s Doctor Who, there's uh, one of the uh, fake Scotsmen is uh, in a Doctor Who story from the 60s called The Crotons. Oh. So uh, there's oh. one for the nerds. <laughs> Like I said, this movie is its a recommendation for me, but it's there's so much potential here that just wasn't tapped into. Yeah. Like, I just, yeah. Yeah, uh, again, I, I want to kind of give it credit for going there first, you know, because mm-hmm. this was ahead of a lot of the, the, the Sherlock stuff that followed that did start to deconstruct and reinterpret and go places where previous adaptations hadn't. It, it does mention the fact that he's using cocaine. It does mention the fact that his sexuality is ambiguous. It's, I think it's disappointing in that it doesn't really go anywhere with these things, but it is in their first or pretty much first mentioning these things. And they do lay the groundwork for where future adaptations will take it. The Granada television series with Jeremy Brett, which I, mm. it, that's my favorite Holmes of all on, on screen mm. anyway. Although, you know, well, I mean, this is the thing. There's about five different versions of Sherlock Holmes in the original stories. So you can't really complain that any any television or film version of Holmes isn't true to the book, because what does that even mean? And I do think that the, the character of Holmes in the, in the Granada series is kind of a new character co-written by Conan Doyle and the series writers and Jeremy Brett. But mm. even so, a, a lot of that does treat the very themes that this film is raising. I mean, a lot of what Brett does with it is he raises the character's ambiguous emotional and sexual attitudes and his his own questioning of himself with those things. It's all it's all done with the performance and subtext. And the series does raise the um the drugs issue as well. You have like a mini arc in the in the TV series where Holmes kicks it. And one of my favorite episodes of the TV series, The Devil's Foot, shows him actually kicking the kicking the drug and going through withdrawal and stuff like that. And this is this is stuff that's 
really necessary and important and interesting um, reassessment and deconstruction of the character. And you have to give this movie credit for sort of, as I say, breaking the ice, getting there first. Mm. And I'd, I'd say, unfortunately, uh, with the Granada series, Jeremy Brett's Holmes, his sort of physical constitution degrades with the actual actor's constitution because he was just a notorious alcoholic. He, yeah, he was a he was a very sick man and a very unhappy guy because he I mean, this is what I mean about him co-authoring the character. He puts an awful lot of himself into the character. Yeah. Jeremy Brett is a man who struggled all his life with ambiguous and tortured feelings about his own sexuality and addictions and things like that. So, I mean, that's part of what makes it so compelling. But it's also very sad to watch. You know? Yeah. And I mean, this this film ends very sad. Like It's it's very melancholy, isn't it? The mm-hmm. film? Yeah. Yeah. He sort of meets like an Irene Adler in this film, who well, matches it's him. Holmes. It's Holmes just kind of realizing that like he, there are just forces he can't do anything about, mm. and there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just at a certain point, it's like, yes, Holmes, you found us. Congratulations. Yeah. Also, you're just going to now be sidelined for the last twenty minutes of the or the last ten minutes of the film while you know, the real story happens around you. And, you know, it would be easy to kind of criticize in another film, but I think that's that's largely the point. I mean, especially, can you imagine like a three-hour version of this that ends with, yeah, yeah, yeah great, yeah, good job, man. Um, it turns out you <laughs> missed everything that was at all important. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, I don't know. I, there, there's something. There's something bold about that. There's something interesting. I mean, it, it. I do really like the film. I do think. I do like that it gestures towards stuff. Um, I have not seen the Jeremy Brett version, but I'm learning that I should. Uh, which yeah. is part um, of the. Which part of the part of. Cycle a couple episodes in place of the Rathbone stuff as we go. Okay, cool. I'd, I'd love to come back on if you're going to talk about some of those. I, what I'm learning from this conversation is that we need to do a, a three-person uh, Sherlock Holmes podcast, a, another thread <laughs> of They Must Be Destroyed on the Site, which is just looking at Sherlock Holmes adaptations. But uh, I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm up for that in theory. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I think this and, is. I mean, one thing I do like about the fact that Holmes is kind of surplus to requirements and almost fails in this is that that is something that does happen from time to time in the stories. Yeah, and it's not something that really happens in the Basil Rathbone film series, for instance. Although you did talk last time about the Pearl of Death, where Holmes completely screws the pooch with his <laughs> smug little demonstration of why electric electrical security systems don't work. Why and, uh, electricity is bad. It's 1943. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But kind of one, of one of the things that does get a bit grating about the Rathbone movies, as much as I love them, is that Holmes is kind of just a perfect Superman in them, uh, or, uh, despite the fact that he's a massive asshole. Um, he, he is just right all the time. And he's right because the writers need him to be right. And then they justify it with a, with a lampshade, you know, here and there. But even so, he just strides through the, the movies being right all the time. So yeah. as much as I do find. The, the Billy Wilder movie a bit frustrating and a bit tiresome. It is, you know, especially watching it after the the Rathbone one. It is a bit of a you can see you can see why it was necessary to break this ice, as I say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, uh, I so... like uh, Genevieve Page. Just I, I'm always the yeah. one I gotta gotta bring up the the woman of the film. She's good. Um, I think she's obviously beautiful. But I think uh, also also I was just looking at her Wikipedia page. She had a 40 year career. Oh. Which is um, uh, delightful, and uh, some of these films I think we're we're going to have to cover. She's in El Cid. She's in Belle de Jour, you know, and so she started started acting in uh, 1952. So uh, you know, she she's at this point a, a seasoned veteran, and I think that that comes across in the film. And uh, 
yeah, no, I, I, I do think she's a, uh, a reasonable um, foil for Holmes. I think, I think she doesn't, she comes across as someone uh, kind of equal to him, uh, you know, like uh, the character does not overwhelm the screen in that way. Mm. Well, especially no, she- when you retrospectively realize that the whole time she's doing things like wandering around naked and pretending to think he's her husband and clinging onto him, she's actually fucking with him. That's right. when, when you realize that that's not actually her being a damsel in distress, but it's actually this super Machiavellian German spy deliberately fucking with his head. That's yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah, what the yeah. Germans are like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Those Germans fuckers. Any, any final thoughts before we uh, move on there, gentlemen? Or No, I'm good. Yeah. I think I'm done. I like doing these. We do quick episodes. We do two movies in an hour and six minutes. It's yeah. So uh, originally Peter O'Toole was going to play Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and Peter Sellers was going to play Dr. Watson, but Billy Wilder decided to go with lesser known actors instead of stars. It was yeah. interesting. Originally, the scenes featuring the Loch Ness Monster were intended to be filmed in the actual lock, but a life-size prop was built, which had several Nessie-like humps used to disguise flotation devices. The humps were removed, however, at Billy uh, Wilder's request. And unfortunately, during a test run, the damn thing sunk into the lock. And the original monster prop, and I remember hearing about this, was not located uh, until 2016. There was wow. someone doing a survey of the lock, and they found it. <laughs> so, <laughs> No, really what they found was the actual Loch Ness monster. Yeah. Carcass, and they covered and it they up. Covered it up by saying, yeah. "Oh no, it's just the mechanical one from that movie." That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's fake, right. Fake news, black ops, false <laughs> flag. They, they found the dead body of the real Loch Ness monster at the bottom of the lock. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> uh, the subplot in which Sherlock Holmes is approached by a famous ballerina who wishes him to father a child on her is inspired by the real life incident. Uh, George Bernard Shaw was once approached by a notorious dancer. Isadora Duncan, who told them that if they had a child together, it would have my beauty and your brains. Shaw rebuffed her quickly, saying, Ah, yes, dear lady, but what if it had my beauty and your brains instead? Apparently apparently that was a no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, he he got home and he suddenly thought, What the fuck did I just do? I just turned down a definite shag. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if if, if a famous Russian uh, ballet dancer wants some of my semen... Uh, I think I can. I think we can make. I think we can make things happen. I think it's okay. Yeah, you know. Yeah. You know. I can just imagine him especially, clutching his head, you especially know. and giving me a Stradivarius uh, on top of that. You know. <laughs> Although you know, if someone pre- presented me a vodka that tasted like red peppers, I, I might. Yeah. I might. You know. Yeah, that doesn't all, all go yeah. well, does it? Yeah, lady, your taste in booze makes me think we're not compatible. We should right. probably just not have a kid. Oh, did you notice, by the way, in in that scene when the, the the sort of pigeon Russian the guy is doing when he's telling her that Holmes is homosexual, the word that he uses is pederast. Peder- yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And the, although at least it leads to a funny joke with Watson, where he he has a potential like six-way with all these ballerinas and then it turns into a potential six-way of all these dudes <laughs> yeah yeah this is another one of those movies from the 70s where young women are mysteriously interested in middle-aged guys well yeah middle-aged guys who don't necessarily look like watson so much as they look like edgar Allan poe like <laughs> uh, but, oh, yeah. and uh, every male ba- ballet star is gay of course yeah of course of course you know the the, the guy says well, you know, we're not so uh, we're, we're not so stuck up here in the in the in the, in the Russian uh, ballerina game. You know, uh, many of us are gay in this in this industry or whatever. You know, like okay, 
that guy he's sort of both ways he says yeah yeah that one guy uh sort of both ways <laughs> half and half i think he says. you you can tell in that material like that's where like ial diamonds you know strengths shine like that's that's where like oh we're gonna do the the goofy comedy bit like just the idea that we're gonna have an entire you know like five or six minute scene where you know one of the characters is just speaking this kind of weird pigeon russian <laughs> and uh you know we're just going to kind of build like extended comedy on that uh you know i i don't know i i find that i find that delightful in that you know kind of this period of comedy kind of thing i thought that ballerina looked really good for being 48 though apparently <laughs> <laughs> he says i'm 38 no no actually i'm 49 that's like well you know then, yeah. Uh, but yeah uh jack it was an absolute pleasure to have you back Please tell people where they can find you on the internet, where you do stuff, and then and what you do. Pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I love this podcast. Uh, if you want to read what I write, you can find me at shabugangraffiti.com, which is part of Eruditor and Press. Uh, I have a Patreon if you'd love to give me money i certainly wouldn't say no um you can find that via my twitter and you can find everything i do via my twitter which is at underscore jack underscore graham underscore and my main project at the moment my main public project anyway is that i'm doing a uh, a podcast with your very own daniel harper i don't speak german where I, we talk about terrible people uh, neo-nazis and fascists and white supremacists and people like that well you know all about this anyway if you listen to this podcast but daniel's listened to all their podcasts and he comes on i don't speak german and he tells me all about it and we usually do one of those every week or every couple of weeks so yeah listen to that yeah da- daniel you've never told me about this do you do anything else on the interweb no no that's pretty much it these days it's just it's this and that that's about it you know i used to have a life but now i just have podcasts yeah. Now you just have Nazis. But they can, Nazis they can, they and can... podcast and Nazi yeah. podcast. Those are the three things in my life these days. Yeah. That's right. The uh, Venn diagram of Daniel's life is <laughs> podcasts and Nazis. It's all a big circle, yeah. Where can they find you on Twitter, Daniel? I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. You can find me there. Exactly. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Daniel, what are we doing next? Are we, are we going to just do the seven percent solution since I already watched half of it and took notes? <laughs> sounds sounds good. We'll do that, and we'll do something else, uh, either one of the the Rathbones, or maybe we'll do one of the Jeremy Bretts, uh, as as we kind of suggested. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, it's either going to be a Rathbone or a Jeremy Brett. We'll figure it out. And if you're on the Facebook group, which you should be, uh, you'll find out really really soon. But uh, until then, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with some more Sherlock Holmes goodness next episode. Goodbye.
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>